When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 186. What is Web 1, Web 2, Web 3? Pretty obvious. Pretty obvious that that's what it is. I'm not going to give you an episode description. We're going to be going into um, almost a lecture style what Web 1, 2, and 3 are, the transitions between them, how they started, those type of things. So if you're interested in this sort of thing or interested in episodes like this and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And just a brief introduction before we jump into the various segments regarding Web 1, 2, and 3. If you're currently listening to this, which you probably are, you're probably already annoyed by hearing you know web one web two web three nfts cryptocurrencies it's a lot and in my opinion we hear about this stuff way too often with little or no break from it especially if you're in certain sort of communities or certain circles now the goal of this episode was for me to do my own research into web three and share what i'd kind of call a comprehensive introduction into what web two is web three is what web one is get a little bit of history in there but nothing that's super super in depth I'm not going to be going into you know how this tech was created and all these little things I'm I'm going to be kind of doing a broad, I, I'm just going to say a broad stroke, but at the same time, I have 10 pages of show notes, but um, hopefully it's not too, hopefully it's not too much because there's a lot to cover here. But remember, this is just more or less an introduction. So being in the web industry myself, I and mean, I've been exposed to web two and web three directly, but it's one of those things that we just sort of exist in and know about. But if someone were to ask me point blank, like, what is Web3? My answer would, before doing this research, would have been more abstract ideas than a direct, you know, this is the answer. This is sort of like the dictionary answer, if you will. So that's why I wanted to do some research, get like a really formal uh, sort of definition, if you will, of these three things, learn a little bit of the backstory, and then we can have a conversation about all of that. So now, without further ado, let's jump into Web 1.0. We're going to be covering the origin story, what is it, and then obviously the transition into Web 2, which is basically the introduction into Web 2. So the beginning. So Web 1.1, or 1.0, sorry. So Web 1.0 represents the earliest version of the internet as it emerged from its origins through DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, For the first time, the internet became a global network. So the internet before that was basically labs and certain institutions that were all connected together to share information uh you get you could go into all the history of all that but i won't do that basically basically you know the thing you need to understand is that it was sort of this closed sort of network this closed sort of club and then it became this global network for the first time but the web of the term web 1.0 didn't show up until the coining of the term uh web 2.0 which was done in 1999 by darcy denucci hopefully i'm saying that correctly so 
what is Web 1.0? So Web 1.0 or Web 1, because it's said in a variety of ways, Web 1 represents a period of time in which the web was mostly read-only, if you will. Websites were used more as a source of information and research than they were to su- for something for us to log into and interact with. Web pages were largely static, which obviously lends itself to the read-only definition, and they hosted their content within the actual website's files themselves and not in external databases as we do today. So if you think about that, if you were to write a, let's say, a blog post, you might actually be writing the blog post in an HTML file using paragraph tags and header tags and those type of things, whatever was compatible back then. That's what you would have been using. Websites were largely made of HTML files with styling actually done right in the HTML. So with that styling done right in the HTML, tags were often misused to get desired layouts to work. Probably most famously, the misuse of the tables tag or the table tag for columns and overall layouts was used. So Mike and I actually, when we first started web development, which would have been six, seven years ago, a good two or three jobs, oh, I don't know how many we actually did, but a good two or three jobs came in where we had to retrofit, fix up, or replace an old website. And almost all of those in the, in the three were actually this. They were, they were misuses of the table tag. And that was because back then there wasn't necessarily sort of a standard. And obviously there wasn't any sort of web development masters at that point because web development was new. So tables kind of make sense. Right now we use, say, display flex or display grid or display block. And we sort of lay things out in, you know, two column design, three column design, sort of as an overall layout. Back then, you know, you didn't have your Flexbox, you didn't have your your CSS grids, you didn't have that type of stuff. So having a table where it didn't have borders, but it had one big column on the left, one big column on the right, or a third column made a lot of sense. So misuse of tags, and it was more than just tables, but a really big one, a really big famous one, is the misuse of the table tag, because it was just honestly super handy to do layouts without having something like Flexbox or CSS grid. Now, in line with its... Uh, I guess pun intended there, but in line with its read-only label, uh, websites were largely non-interactive. So read-write tech and modern functionalities were not quite developed yet, as the internet was basically cobbled together by its origins, which is why I mentioned the origins with DARPA, which was just a bunch of connected labs. And and then obviously, then as it started becoming more public, it started adding some commercial servers and other digital hot points. So it was kind of just a cobbled together network. It wasn't quite this flushed out, super consumerized thing. And even the basics, like you'd think a contact form, they weren't flushed out yet. Hosting servers were often not equipped with the ability to run server-side scripts, which made most early contact forms or most email forms actually just open up the user's local email client with an email address provided by the websites that users could then email. So if you had Outlook, let's say the local client on your computer, and you click the send button or something along those lines in, in, in a form, or you click like a contact us button, nine out of 10 times, it would actually open up in your email client. And that still exists today. Obviously, we have contact forms as well. But if you click on a contact uh, button, it's not super rare that it does open up your uh, email app on your phone or your email app on your computer. But back then, it was almost always the case due to the lack of the server-side scripting that was available. Now, hosting in 1.0, as you probably uh, you know, picked up on by now was all, was also a different landscape. So many websites were actually hosted on servers that were owned by ISPs, internet service providers. Otherwise, there were some free hosting services that were also common for other people as well, for people doing maybe small projects, those type of things. And this is a weird one too. So running advertisements was actually not allowed 
in Web 1. Um, now, this is obviously a major difference from today, where you have full-on corporations that have large office space, uh, you know, running primarily just on ad revenue. So just to show you the power of how how much ad revenue you can you like these uh, how much ad revenue a lot of these places have, you can have. You know, you're in some fancy city, you have a whole floor, which God knows how much in thousands of dollars per month in rent that is. And the primary source is from ad revenue. Now, a little bit of that's changing now with some privacy laws and stuff like that. And people are finding, you know, better ways to advertise. But the point is, ad revenue is still a huge piece, if not the primary source of revenue for a lot of companies. And that wasn't around in Web 1.0. Now, with all this knowledge that we have now, I'll give you an e-commerce store example from the back in the days of Web 1.0. So let's say you have a store, whatever, and you want to, you have a, you obviously have a bunch of products and services that you offer. So you're giving users a catalog where users could view products and services. Pretty simple. Bunch of different squares there, probably misusing the table tag to get those squares to show up. And it's like, hey, we sell spoons and forks and kitchen supplies and stuff like that. Now, sometimes you'd go beyond this and you'd throw together a place order button. But what that would actually do is it wouldn't open up some sort of complex, hey, add stuff to the cart, this and that. It would more or less open up that email, uh, that local email client that the person had. And it would just fill in your email and be like, you click a place order button or your email would be directly just on the thing and say, hey, you know, let us know what item numbers you want type of thing. This really speaks, this example really speaks to the information and research angle of Web1, where users would research what they wanted from a company. So they went through the catalog and then they either use an email or a phone number that was listed on the site to order things that they saw online. The browser was not used to do a checkout on a credit card or anything along those lines. It was basically just a digital version of the physical catalog that you'd get from, say, Sears, which was a big thing back, back in the day where in our area here in Canada. Now, there's another example here, which is of browsers. So browsers were also a lot different in Web 1. They weren't just technologically lesser because of the less, lesser technology back then. Browsers were actually competing quite a bit, and they were often trying to attract new users with new features, including supporting various non-standard tags that led to, of course, compatibility problems between different browsers. So if I logged into browser 1 and it supported the hello tag, and then I try to log into browser 2, that whatever that content is in the hello tag might not work on browser two because hello because the hello tag only works in browser one those type of things and we still see a small amount of this today obviously we'll have a bit of disparity between safari doesn't quite support this yet chrome doesn't quite support this yet those type of things we'll see a little bit of it however the widespread adoption of new features and tags is much better and is often remedied by updates down the line and this is alongside the fact that there's been a mass adoption of chromium which helps a lot and this mass adoption, of course, spans things like Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, Opera, Samsung Internet, and probably more examples than that as well. Now, just as a sort of uh, rapid fire list, I found this uh, information on websitebuilders.com. So I'm taking their list basically verbatim. Uh, so these are sort of, sort of the, some of the, the telltale Web1 characteristics. So static pages, that's the first one. There's no interactive features or uh, for users. Site's mostly informational. First one, bang, done. Second one, content stored in files. So website content often stored in website files, not in a separate database as it is today. Next one, combination of content and layout. Most styling built right into that page markup, which led to a lot of the misuse of the tags, like we mentioned, such as the tables tag. 
proprietary HTML tags. This is obviously the browsers trying to stand out and attract downloads. So this led to a lot of incompatibility with incompatible browsers trying to load these weird tags, that type of thing. So that happened. Three, this is when web started, web one started kind of maturing. So guest books, visitor comments would often not be placed at the bottom of say news articles. They'd be placed on some sort of guest book page, not in a comment section. So this is one of those things where web one's starting to mature a little bit. It's starting to get a little bit more functionality, a little more server side scripting. Maybe this one website's really fancy because it has comments or has a guest book, those type of things. And then the last point here, email, emailing of forms. So hosting servers rarely supported server side scripting, as we said, which is required obviously to send an email via form. So often the local, the user's local email client would open. And then there was obviously just press send type of thing from your local client. Now that kind of concludes the web 1.0 section here, but I do have some personal notes that I thought of as we were going through. And the first one is, does anyone remember uh, HTML marquees? I don't know if you remember them, Mike, but HTML marquees, I remember way back, we did a a unit uh, in high school in our programming class where we did HTML and we were using HTML marquees day and night to stylize our text and have little like, this is on sale featured stuff. Like, do you remember HTML marquees at all, Mike? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember GeoCities in general had an HTML marquee kind of component that you could use. And uh, yeah, I've, I think every site that I like I had ever seen that was built on GeoCities because we used to do that in like business class and with our friends just just for fun uh, had a marquee because it was like cool, look, animated text moving from left to right. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's one of those it's one of those classic programmer things where you start building stuff and then you're like, how can I make this fancier? And you don't care how you make it fancier. It's just, if it does something else, it's considered fancier. And then it just gets overused like marquees. Um, so even if it's not good for your design, it's like, Oh, look at this. Like people will love this <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and also another, another thing I want to know, and this was, you know, my experience for a great number of years, it was, I was actually on AOL until just a few years ago. Now, not AOL dial-up, but AOL for broadband here in Canada. And this, and I've had AOL from the dial-up days through the broadband days through to about five, six years ago. So, uh, I have a lot of experience with this and I kind of saw firsthand what the ISPs you know, kind of had and what they kind of lost. So AOL, obviously, America Online was an ISP, if you don't know, that was greatly involved in how the user browsed around. There was AOL keywords. That was a big thing back then. So AOL keywords were shown on TV commercials and banners and billboards to let people know that they could type in just that one word to let people know, you know, what they're looking for. Now, I think you might have been able to type in a phrase as well. But the point being is that if I was running, uh, I don't know, an HVAC company in a local city like Hamilton, I was looking at running that, you might be able to type in just like HVAC Hamilton, and then it'll show me at the top. And that was something that AOL offered in its browser. You would have your normal like bar there for URL. You could type in your URL and stuff. And then you have another bar where you would, t- you would click there and you could type in keywords and it would bring up this other this other screen. And this, this was very popular back then, uh, because so many people were on AOL, this was incredibly popular. I remember cartoons as a kid would say like, Oh, check out our new interactive webpage or whatever, or check out our new like interactive experience, digital experience with, you know, uh, keyword Arthur or whatever, watching Arthur as a kid, those type of things. This was extremely popular and popular enough. Like I said, to get into TV commercials and banners and billboards and be, you know, hard coded into stuff. I bet you, if you go and watch some old media, you're going to see some AOL keyword stuff. Uh, 
So that's something to note. And what this kind of shows, this is one example of, of showing that ISPs had a lot more influence over the internet back then. Obviously, we already mentioned that they were the host of many websites themselves, but they also offered complete software packages such as AOL's own internet browser that helped users easily connect and disconnect to and from their dial-up internet. So dial-up internet, of course, that's the for those that are younger than me, that it like has to like get it has to literally dial the phone and it ties up your phone line in order to get online. AOL kind of had it nailed there where you plug in your modem, you do this and that. They give you some instructions and then you would literally go to their browser, type in your your AOL email and your password and then you would press log in and it would dial the, dial the modem for you. It would do all that stuff and it would get you online. And when you were finally in there, you're in a browser. And now you got your AOL email, you have your bookmarks, you have your AOL keywords, and much more. I remember the AOL uh, toolbar at the top being just packed with different features and different things. They had AOL news, AOL this, AOL that. It was big back then. And so they had a lot of influence over the net. They even had this thing where you'd be you'd be going and using the AOL browser, and they eventually started adding, I don't think, it, I don't remember if it was tabs or whatever, but it was like little windows within this browser. And... If you went to like a website like Google or whatever, it would literally show this little thing at the bottom that would say like, oh, like we have like uh, not page speed, but it was something about speed and you could click on it and it's like, oh, other people on dial up load pages like this. And it's like a little GIF of like a, a page slowly loading, but AOL browser loads it like this and it's like real fast. ISPs had a lot of influence uh, back then, but nowadays, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I, I agree. I just want to add like another kind of component to the whole ISP and uh, AOL side of things was those keywords that you were talking about, like that quote unquote search engine inside of AOL was actually all kind of uh, opt in before. So it, there was no crawler. This was like literally everyone having to register to have their businesses listed on AOL. Right. And this is before Google. This is before any sort of crawling was even happening. So it was another thing that they kind of had a monopoly on where uh, if you wanted to be listed, you had to go through like a form, go through any. I can't like I never actually went through the process of listing something, but I remember it was sort of involved and it was definitely not as easy as it is right now where you don't have to do anything. You just have to put a website online, make sure that it's in the correct format and wait for a little bit for Google to pick you up because there's a crawler going around and searching. So it was a very much catered experience on the web. That's how I remember Web 1 most of all is like it wasn't open. It was really like centralized, catered and uh, limited. Like there was very – there wasn't this rabbit hole of new stuff going on and there wasn't this like ever changing, you know, landscape of um, constantly new websites to check out. It was mostly like these massive giant websites that were always near the top uh, because they were the ones that were either paying for it or they were the ones that were in partnership with AOL and stuff like that. So there wasn't, it wasn't as open as when web two came around right now, arguably, obviously it's become a little bit more centralized again, uh, in the sense that large corporations have taken over the top search results. But regardless, especially in w once, you know, Mac gets into the transition to Web2, there was this kind of Wild West moment where every time you refreshed the browser or every time you refreshed the search results, there was like a new thing going on. That That's a really good point as well, because back in the day, in the earlier days, 
whether search engines weren't around or whether people just didn't know how to use them since the web was so new, but you kind of had to know what websites you were going to. A friend would tell you, hey, go to Pixo or something to make a, a picture site and stuff like that. And you would have to just sort of memorize what that was. Right now, we link things all the time. We link things in our instant messaging chats. We link things, we link things everywhere. We link things everywhere. And Realistically, the internet, even to this day, for the most part, is still just a lot of links kind of leading everywhere. If, if you just release a site and you, ha- and you, like, let's say ban Google from crawling it, there's nothing really connecting you to the outside world other than if somebody somehow finds you and then shares a link to you to, from the, to the outside. Obviously, Google and other crawlers make it a lot easier and they, and you can obviously market on different social medias and share your own links out and stuff like that. Back then, if you take away the crawler, if you take away the search engine, if you take away a lot of that stuff, the internet was really kind of separated. It's like, this guy's over there, that person's over there, that person's over there, that person's over there. And you had to memorize where these people's sites were, really. Um, so it was, it was a different world. Now, whenever I got to go to my bank, online banking, I just Google the bank. But back then it was like, I got to remember, is it, you know, bank, blah, 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 dot com? Like, what is it? That type of stuff. And like, if we, if we transition to nowadays, you know, kind of on this AOL comment, you know, at least in our area, the ISP is basically just a vehicle to get online. They have very little impact short of maybe offering a free email account. And that's kind of it. I don't really know of any, any, uh, ISPs that offer a browser anymore. Everyone's sort of on a third party browser. Like, I mean, at the very least internet Explorer, but obviously Chrome and edge and, you know, all these other things like they're, they're. The ISP is just more or less like, hey, I plugged in my cable. But this leads us back to ISPs trying to stand out. So before it was like the browser is trying to stand out. Now the browsers kind of have stood out. And there's different ways that they do that. But now the ISPs kind of have to stand out because they don't have that sort of power they had anymore. So how do they distinguish themselves these days? So this kind of comes in, in some obvious stuff like pricing. That's a huge one. Network coverage. Obviously, if they're not in your area, you can't go with them. Unlimited data usage. There's lots of plans with data limits here in Canada. Uh, and then perks. I'm starting to see people with perks where they're like, hey, you bought a new house and you bought, you know, Rogers Internet. Uh, here's a free year of Disney Plus or whatever it is. That type of stuff is really popular. And then, of course, a big one, which was probably bigger back in the day, but is still kicking around, is bundling. They loved and still love to bundle your internet, your home phone, and your cable TV. And obviously, these bundles have changed as people don't have home phones as much. And maybe they're, maybe if that ISP also has a mobile division, they'll loop your mobile phone in there, or they'll just do internet and cable TV, or internet and like they have a video streaming service, or something along those lines. They have like a VOD library, that type of thing. But now we have these ISPs starting to, um, starting to distinguish themselves more. And I would say that it almost went on a lull. It's like ISPs were really, like really kind of fighting. And it's like, you know, AOL was king. And then they kind of went by the wayside. People started going with these third-party browsers and people started doing that type of thing. They weren't using, you know, their ISPs browsers. They weren't using their ISP services as much. And then now we're starting to see, at least in my opinion, a a resurgence of ISPs trying to stand out with more than just the pricing and network coverage and data usage. They're starting to say, hey, you know, come over here. We'll give you Xbox Game Pass, that type of stuff. So that's starting to happen again, which is interesting. And it will probably drive competition and lower the price. So that's cool. Yeah. Before we move on, I'm curious, uh, question for you, Matt. What was like the one thing you remember from Web 1.0 days? Like 
what's the what sites did you use or site did you use when it was that static when it was that static honestly it would have been one of the one of the um okay so i don't really know what the site was but what i had was i had <laughs> i had world book 1999 on disc and then I also had the Encarta Encyclopedia on disc. But I remember at school, because we didn't have internet at home, at school, I was I would use a couple of different encyclopedias. It could have been Encarta and stuff, too. But I, I used a couple of different encyclopedias online, and it was absolutely that static. <laughs> so yeah. that, that that's what I did online, as boring as that sounds, just checked on information. But, I mean, it was largely informational. So yeah. for, for me, the thing that I remember most is cheat code sites. For games <laughs> like cheat cc and i can't really there was like four or five of them that i would use to use to, to gamer evolution or game evolution or something something like that but like there, there was so many of them and like they were they were all pretty bad <laughs> like i remember they all had like distinguishing bad features about each other either it'd be the design or just the terrible searchability because like i think some of them there was no search function or even most of them were so you had to like find the right letter that your game started with and scroll all the way down to the game name and stuff like that. So <laughs> it was kind of a disaster. Um, but yeah, that, that's like what stands out to me about what 1.0 days. Well, cause you got to think about that. Like there's a lot of, like I usually use cheat code uh, quite a bit as well. Um, and it was probably later one web 1.0 back then uh, when I started using them, when we got internet at home, but like, for example, uh, them listing a, a crap load of games and a crap load of uh, actual cheats without necessarily having an external database, you know, then you're going to have those usability problems that you were mentioning. And uh, funny enough, I actually went kind of down memory lane not that long ago, a couple months ago, and Game Revolution, which is what it's called, not Game Revolution. I know my friends and I would always fight about that. So I'm looking at it right now. Game Revolution is still going. It's still, it's still doing stuff. They're doing reviews and news and stuff like that. And then uh, Cheat CC was going until not too long ago. I don't know if it's still going, but I, when I checked a few months ago, they hadn't posted in a little bit, but it wasn't like years and years and years. So, I mean, some of these sites have continued throughout the years, which is pretty cool. Piece of history right there. And they obviously aren't Web 1.0 anymore. Obviously, they've gone through upgrades. They have like, I don't know, WordPress or whatever powering their blog capabilities. I would hope so. I would. Yeah, I would certainly hope so. Although it would be kind of awesome. But anyway... Um, so that, that's web one and, uh, now onto web two. So it's not a clear cut and dry. I want to be, want to be clear here. It's not a clear cut and dry. Bam. We're in web two, web two. So web one to web two is a, it was a slow sort of transition and web two is where we're currently at. We're sort of solidified in web 2.0 and we're probably fully in that transition phase to web three, but it takes a while to transition. So it's important to remember that while we commonly break up web one, two, and three into web one, then a transition, then web two, then a transition, and then web three, and then, you know, a future transition probably down the line, the transitions and the different eras. So the web one, two, three are not just cut and dry technology. Like many things can take months or years to change over. And some websites are just, are just left running the way they were for decades. So, it's not, it, it's not only that the technology has to get there, it's that the people have to get there, they have to want to pay for it, or they have to want to do it. They have to have the skills. A brand new tool might come out, but if there's no devs that know how to use it, well, then you're kind of, you know, out of luck that way. So the, the transition phase from Web 1 to 2 started in the late 1990s and had, quote unquote, completed by around 2006. Again, this is sort of loose and not exactly defined. And 
around 2006, the reason why that, that, that kind of ends the transition is because that's when most of the defining web 2.0 features were actually widely available. So for example, Facebook started in 2004. So as you can see, like Facebook obviously had a bunch of, you know, you could post this and that and whatever. So it's becoming less static. And then one, a couple of years into Facebook type of thing, just to use Facebook as one example, just as a couple of years into Facebook, as it's getting solidified, as it's becoming public, not publicly listed, but like publicly accessible because it was just between schools or something. As it, as it slowly becomes more solidified, then it's like, okay, you know, our feature set is more or less set. Now, from a technical perspective, this transition was defined by servers being upgraded, uh, connection speeds being upgraded. So going from, say, in my case, dial-up to AOL for broadband, those type of things. Also, developers, they've been in the game for a while, so they've been learning new skills, learning new techniques, and that type of stuff. And so now Web2, basically, by around 2006, was in full swing, more or less. But like with everything, tech just keeps on going. So what is what is Web2? So while Web1 was considered read-only, Web2, as you'd probably imagine was considered read-write. It's defined by the enhanced web apps and functionality that we all enjoy on the internet today, which contains a lot more user-generated content and a lot more usability for end users in comparison to Web1. So this refers to the 21st century internet applications that transformed the internet after the dot-com bubble. So I just wanted to touch on that really quick. I know that some people will bring up the dot-com bubble it was basically a big thing where a bunch of internet companies were all publicly listed. I don't know much about it, but basically, you know, people were investing like crazy in these dot-com companies, and then there was a big uh, correction or whatever in the market, and then it, it crashed. Don't ask me about that because I didn't do too much research on that, but I just wanted to quickly touch on that Web 1 happened, and then somewhere in this transition period to Web 2, this big dot-com bubble happened. Maybe this will be an episode we do down the line because I actually am kind of interested in it, just haven't researched it. But then this dot-com bubble happened. And then Web 2 kind of came out of the ashes in like a bit. So that's, that's just why I wanted to touch on that. Now, Web 2, even though I did mention technical upgrades, does not refer to specific technical upgrades, but instead refers to how the Internet started to be used. Now, this point's really crucial to me. And the reason why I find this interesting personally is because this is the point in which UX or user experience really drove this experience. And I think this is why we see a lot of UX positions open, UX designers, UX specialists of different sort. And that's why they've started to become the norm. Because if users' use cases virtually shaped an entire era of the internet, which they did, Web2, companies, obviously, when they see this, would start realizing how important UX is. And especially with the amount of things that you can do in the browser now, and that's constantly expanding, you're going to need a UX person. So back in the day, you wouldn't really necessarily need a UX person to do a really basic text to post uh, text to post thing. So let's say, for example, it's Facebook. And the only thing you can do is post uh, really quick, really quick, like, like almost tweets, like, hello, like I'm at the bank today or <laughs> something like that, right? Just really quick text. You really don't need a UX for that. But then once you start adding complexities, like, hey, if you share a link, there's going to be some open graph stuff in here. Hey, you can share videos. Hey, you can have, you can actually upload photos to an album and then share those in posts. Hey, you can, and it just keeps expanding. At that point, you're going to have more UX problems. And so with the, uh, with web two being, you know, so UX driven, and then obviously with so much stuff that you can do with these apps, edit videos and blah, 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 you're going to need a UX person. 
So I think that, that this point's kind of, it's kind of a sleeper, but it's, to me, it's like really stood out as like, hey, like this is kind of where UX expertise, in my opinion, sort of began for the web. So web two also gave rise to more connectivity between users, obviously, right, with social media, bringing the ability for users to communicate and share ideas in various ways, like tweets and comments and social media posts, like I've already mentioned, and blogs and, and, and much more. There's a lot. With all this functionality as well, it's not just there for you to use. Users are literally encouraged to engage and create content. You're encouraged to not just be a viewer or a reader. And this can be seen with device sales, such as many laptop commercials being aimed at creators. This laptop is great for creators. You know, render videos and do all this crazy stuff and check out these cameras and stuff like that. You're being encouraged to create. And where are you going to put that stuff? Well, you're not going to, you're not going to necessarily, um, like make it physically, a lot of the stuff you're going to make a video and then put it on YouTube. You're not going to get it on film and then show it in the local theater. You know, you're not going to get the exposure. Maybe you're going to do that as a niche thing, but the main thing that they're driving you to do is to post it online. Now, I do have a list here um, of various site types that Web2 saw the, the rise of. And this list I almost verbatim took from uh, Znet Live. And all of this information, actually, I do want to point out, all this information I've been reading so far and all the information I will be reading down the line, I have from various sources, and I will be linking those in the show notes. So this list now, the rise of various types of sites, including hosted services, which, for example, Google Maps. Next one, web apps. So think Word Online, Google Docs. Video sharing, the big one, YouTube, and then Vimeo. Wikis, something like MediaWiki, blogs, WordPress, Blogger, those type of things, social media, Facebook, and a bunch of others. And then podcasting, something like Podbean. And there's there's many more other types of sites. Now, this, this list of sites also indicates the fact that things really are more interconnected than ever. So for example, Google Maps can be designated as a hosted service because it is. It's a service that Google hosts and you can see a bunch of maps on there. But it's also a web app because you can use it to get directions, plan trips, and even interacting with local public transportation if that's available in your region. The functionality of websites and web apps is is steadily expanding at an incredible rate. It's going super fast, and that's why you need those UX designers, and that really shows our interconnectivity because obviously, for example, if you're, if Google Maps is talking to, let's say, my local bus company, but it's also talking to the local bus company in, I don't know, Texas, well, there's got to be a lot of interconnectivity there because Google's not going to, or, or rather, th- these two bus companies aren't going to talk together to like come up with a bunch of information to then send out, you know, more or less like there's going to be a web of interconnectivity to get all this information everywhere. I don't know how it works exactly, but it's showing that we're being more interconnected than ever, even among our local services. Now, this explosion in online functionality was not just UX based. However, the technologies obviously had to play a big role. So Web2, in its most simple form, in its very simple form, is just allowing for users to enter information into form fields and having that information processed by a hosting server in some way. For example, they're storing that information or they're sending it somewhere. So there's some, say, baseline tech in here. So HTTP, that's absolutely fundamental in Web2. The browser sends the server a message corresponding to the user's submitted information and establishes all the communications or virtually all the communications that drive Web2. Then there's also some things that are even considered old. Some have died at this point, but they're still a big part or were a big part of Web2. Things like Adobe Flash, Microsoft Silverlight, and then, of course, JavaScript. Those are web texts that deliver along Web2 alongside other helpful tech like RSS, 
which helps a lot of news apps. Ajax, so that you're not, when you're posting a comment, you're not going to another page or you're not refreshing that page. It's just a smooth click and bam, your, your comments right there. So a lot of this tech, even though it, it's not necessarily defining Web2, it's certainly a big part of it. Now, obviously, with all this, servers were uh, servers offered by hosting services were upgraded to allow for less read-only and more read-write. They allowed more server-side scripting. And as the demand for online services grew, the supply also grew to meet that demand, giving rise to more price-accessible services like hosting companies with various tiers for different use cases. Things like shared hosting, VPS or virtual private servers, dedicated servers, and finally cloud services. Now, I do want to have a real quick little disclaimer in here. You can argue that shared VPS and dedicated is cloud computing because they are, quote unquote, in the cloud. But the consumerized or the marketing term cloud computing refers to the more, say, modern version of of computing in the cloud with services such as AWS and Microsoft Azure. It has to do with scalability, how it's set up, those type of things. So when I say cloud computing, that's what I'm more or less referring to. So the rise in this cloud computing, this is why I wanted to define this, the rise in this cloud computing allowed for the web development community at large to not just have more capability, but actually expand their thinking. They could start planning bigger projects, executing bigger projects, and they no no longer had those very strict limits that you would find on shared and VPS and even dedicated. They kind of moved to a more abstract model of, say, quote unquote, infinite or virtually infinite resources. So think things like dedicated game servers that dynamically turn off and on as more players come on and the corresponding matchmaking and player profile services, video editing services. You can edit video online now right in the browser, word processing, word online, those type of things, image hosting and editing. That's a lot of space. That's a lot of space. And you never know when someone's going to upload one photo or a thousand. So you got to have like a lot of space on hand. And also a big one that we don't really think about anymore, transcoding. Transcoding specifically video on the fly. Those are those quality controls at, at YouTube. For the, for when you're, when you upload just a little fact, I suppose, a little factoid. If I were to upload a file, not even to YouTube, but just like some sort of video streaming service. If I were to upload a file that at 1080p and I have, I want to watch it, but I have a slower connection. So I have to watch it at 480p. There needs to be some computing or transcoding done to bring that down on the fly to 480p. Think about that on a YouTube scale and how many people are watching YouTube and flipping around in the qualities, even with the auto switcher. So even you, Google's doing it to itself now. YouTube's doing it to itself now. Think about all that computing power that it's going to need to do that. Now, obviously there's ways around that you can like, transcode it once and like store another file that says 480p and it would stream that directly. There's different ways around that. But the point is, is that we can now think bigger. We don't need to have nine file types and this type of that. We can actually just transcode on the fly with this cloud computing. And if we think about it before cloud computing, and this is still in web too, before cloud computing, really heavy applications would have to be hosted or run on something like a VPS or a dedicated server because shared hosting just wouldn't quite cut it. But you'd have to try and nail down how much computing was needed overall. You'd have to figure out the worst case scenario for computing power needed and then purchase that much. So think about this. If you, if the worst case scenario is every Saturday you have a bunch of your users log on and you're using 12 gigs of RAM, but throughout the rest of the week you're using one gig of RAM, you cannot buy one gig of RAM. You got to buy 12. And that leaves a bunch of those resources, the CPU, the RAM, all that not being used to their full capability when the non-peak hour or the non-peak day comes around. And 
if more than the disaster scenario that you estimated happens and you suddenly need more computing power on a whim, your site will start to suffer performance-wise. Maybe it'll crash, start glitching out, those type of things. With modern cloud computing services, these issues are not, not eliminated, but they're mitigated with more CPU storage and RAM often available right at your disposal and often available dynamically or at least purchasable as needed. So for example, you may play a cloud hosting uh, service you may pay them a fee of $5 a month flat, and then you pay them more dynamically based on what you're using. So you pay your five plus usage, and your usage may be charged by the minute or by the second. So if you have a really slow month, maybe you're only paying the five bucks. You have a really heavy month, maybe you're paying 15 bucks, that type of thing. Now, the big thing with all these Web2 web apps and services that we've come to know and use daily are that they are centralized, okay? Centralized meaning that they're hosted on a server or a cluster of servers that are run by a single entity or corporation. And this gives that entity the power over those resources, often limited only by local laws and regulations. So for example, if I tweet uh, a photo of a bottle of ketchup, that's it. It's the photo of a bottle of ketchup. Maybe I write the word ketchup in the tweet. And that tweet that tweet and his photos, sorry, are actually stored somewhere on a server or servers that are owned by Twitter. If Twitter decides that ketchup is banned from their service altogether, they can actually go in there and just delete my tweet. They can remove my tweet. They can do whatever they want there. They can even ban me for going against their policy. So again, there's local laws and regulations that like prevent certain, certain activities. But for the most part, Twitter has a lot of power from that centralized, that one centralized source, which is Twitter. Now, this centralization stuff is, is a lot of what Web3 gurus and enthusiasts are hoping to get away from in the future, but that's not the only thing that Web3 has in store, and that'll lead us to the transition. But I have some personal notes on Web2 still. So if you're a hobbyist that does something in an online community or needs constant reference material, you probably saw, depending on how long you've been doing it, you probably saw firsthand how Web2.0 came to be. So for example, let's say you were into gaming in the mid-90s. And, you know, or before, even before then, and you were looking up, you know, new game releases or game guides online, rather than waiting for the physical magazine, which were popular at the time every month. So as the man grew, these resources and these searches were met with companies such as GameSpot, which is a big publication and IGN, another big publication, both starting in 1996. So about, you know, mid 90s ish. So if you had a specific question about a game that you were stuck in, you'd mostly be out of luck in the early days. Unless one of these big publications covered it, you'd be kind of kind of screwed. But then slowly, forums started coming out. Like GameFAQs or GameFAQs more specifically came out. And those sort of started like slowly people being like, hey, I'm stuck on this level. Like I'm stuck on this level in this particular room, that type of thing. But now things have exploded. There's communities on Discord. There's Reddit. There's forums. There's Facebook. There's Twitter. There's like the list goes on and on and on and on and on. As Web 2.0 and its creator culture grew, it became more and more accessible to make content without the backing of a big website or media company. So whereas even though GameSpot and IGN are obviously still around, there are now individual influencers that make their own content, like game reviews and g- game guides, and maybe they'll even message you in their Discord to help you with something or just to chat or something like that. And they do this with little more than a capture card, webcam, and microphone. So the supply has grown from just the large websites, the supply of this gaming content has grown from just these large media companies, basically, to full-on communities where you can ask questions, share funny clips, share articles and different coverage from, you can also share the, the coverage from the big, from the, uh, the big websites, because they're obviously going to do news, like they're going to cover press releases and that type of thing. But also you can go, to, you can not even go to the big guys anymore. You can just go to your favorite influencers for cover and commentary 
uh, for uh, coverage and commentary, excuse me. So it, it really has, even though Web2, you know, we kind of want to put a pin in it and we want to say like, Web2 is this, Web2 changed a lot in Web2. It's like tech is always moving around. And so like from two, like imagine sites back in 2006. That's when, you know, Web2 was in full swing. It's like 2006 is today is a big friggin' difference. 2010 to today is a big friggin' difference. And 2015 to today is a big, a big difference. So tech's always moving and you can't just put like a, a pin in your timeline. You can't really do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think the other part is that Web2, I think why we're starting to talk about Web3 now is that obviously some of the technology is starting to, you know, become more mainstream and stuff like that. And you'll, you'll cover that in a second. But I think the main reason is because we've kind of peaked with Web2 a little bit. I think that's another, like Web2 has really matured um, to the sense that almost anyone can create, like, like you were saying, the hobbyist part of it. Whereas when Web2 first went around, like 2006, launching a larger social media site or launching a larger site where it had a lot of interaction and had a lot of users was a thing that a team of people needed to do where you needed a DevOps person, IT department, server infrastructure. Like you had so many, you had so much that had to go right (laughs) and you had so much that had to be planned for something to be launched off the ground that you needed a very seasoned team of people constantly servicing, creating and stuff like that. Whereas now with Web2, a single person can run a full-on scalable application that's servicing thousands, if not millions of people without too much of a hassle. Like that's a crazy concept to me um, in the Web2 space right now or in the web space in general right now where I personally have started to delve a lot more into the back end for one of the projects that I'm on. And there's some crazy developer tools that make it super easy to create a super easy and simple, queryable, scalable database that I would have only dreamed of 10, five years ago. Let's not even say 10 years ago, five years ago. This would have been a dream. Like no way would I have said that this would happen. But we're at the point where like, bam, all of these developer tools are being built so that anyone can like take a site from start to finish as a single person or as like a small team without having to worry about every little piece of the puzzle. There's like Vercel for developer, for for DevOps and for continuous integration is crazy, crazy good. Like it's a crazy system that you don't have to almost do anything. You just like cook it up to a a, a Git repo to be able to launch a full backend frontend website with API endpoints. Then you have stuff like freaking like, like Prisma as a data layer and planet scale as a database. Like, not having to write SQL queries. I don't like with my current setup, I don't have to write a single SQL query because they're all abstracted and written for me. I just have to use them. It's, it's like we're, we're at a very high point in our web two state that it makes sense that now we're starting to think about what's next. And I think as Matt will talk about the transition to web three, I think it's important, like Matt said, where you see the evolution from 2006 to now, we don't know what Web3 is going to be. Like, we just don't. We have some ideas and we have some technologies that we think is going to, are going to be foundational to it. But I guarantee you that all or most of the predictions that we make or anyone else makes right now are going to be skewed, completely wrong, or just plain, like, or, or just like slightly on, on track. Though that's best case scenario, in my opinion. So 
take it all with a grain of salt because it's going to evolve rather quickly and in different directions than we think. But I think it's still important to kind of look at the foundational stuff right now and start to at least think around it. Even if like, like Matt's was saying at the beginning, even if you're at the point where you're like, I hate hearing about it. Like I hate hearing about Web3. But if you're in the web development game, which you are since you're listening to this podcast, it is going to be part of web development. It might not be a huge part for five years or whatever, but it's something you will have to start keeping an eye on because you're going to have clients or you're going to have bosses coming down to you and being like, how do we integrate this? And all of a sudden you're in web three and it, it's not, it doesn't have to be a scary thing. It could just be like another library or it could just be another piece of technology that you have to learn. I think it's important to at least understand what's coming up and what's going to, what's going to change the way you do your job. Think of it that way rather than, oh, cryptocurrency and power and stuff like that. Like that's all – yes, that's all there. But that's not what this episode is about. That's not what – that's not what learning about the technology is about. So keep an open mind in that sense. Another thing too is that with Web3 being so new, there's obviously going to be a lot – and us being so interconnected due to Web2 is that we there's a lot of stuff that gets really hyped. Cryptocurrencies, NFTs, blockchain, that gets really hyped. But I'm going to cover in Web3 stuff that isn't that because – it, like it's easy to forget and i literally forget all the time that there's other stuff in web3 that isn't just that stuff it's just there's a lot of things that are super hype they get a lot of marketing maybe there's a lot of money behind them etc and it really kind of takes off so i'm going to mention obviously those things but there's a lot of stuff in web3 that isn't crypto it isn't any of that and you probably use some of it so i'm gonna i'm gonna just jump right in right now so the transition to web3 if there was a timeline written right now there'd be a big stamp you are here we are currently experiencing the transition from Web 2 to Web 3. I'd say we're kind of sol- like solidly in it because obviously cryptos have been around for a while now and stuff like that. So we're more or less in it. Now, I will say this is that a lot of the estimates or a lot of the speculation or a lot of like, this is what Web 3 is going to be articles and stuff like that are really estimates. They're taking what we currently know and they're extrapolating it from that current form to see what it'll be like down the line in five years, 10 years, stuff like that. So a lot of it's estimates because there's different ways that things are going to happen. There's going to be laws that are passed that are going to change it. There's going to be people using things differently that are going to change it. There's going to be pricing that's going to change it. It's just going to be a really, it's going to be UX. It's like at the end of the day, Web3 is going to be driven, I think, again, by UX. And I know that people are kicking and screaming with some of the stuff, but people were kicking and screaming about magazines back in the day. So like, you know what I mean? Like it's just it just comes down to the fact that we're going into the future and the community at large is going to be able to steer it. So I'm, I'm going to get into this right now. So if I were to just really quickly rip off a quick list of Web Web3 technologies that have started to show themselves in our everyday lives. And this is not by any means comprehensive. Virtual assistants. That's that's a Web3 thing. Siri and Google Assistant. That's a Web3 thing because of it's intelligent and it's AI. Cryptocurrencies, of course. NFTs, of course. Blockchain, decentralized apps. I'd say D apps are real early, so we'll see how that goes. Smart contracts, that's pretty big. And UX changes with how we interact with websites. I mentioned this on the episode last week, where you can log into a variety of apps with one crypto wallet, no need to make an account. So maybe stuff like that's going to find its way into other things. So I'm going to move into the Web3 section, but I want to be clear that I'm not, again, it isn't like, here's a, here's a clear definition of Web2 and here's a clear definition of Web3. We are still in the transition of Web3. So this, I literally titled this speculation and fast moving. So <laughs> here we go. As mentioned briefly uh, before, uh, Web3 is so new and is not 
quite here yet. So it's really hard to nail down a strict definition as to what Web3 is. Like the previous generations before, Web3 will be defined by how people use it, that UX that I mentioned. Um, and the internet and the actual capabilities and the technologies that complement those u- use cases, the prices, the regulations, all those things will shape the UX, which will shape the Web Web3. At least that's what I think. We are in the intermediate phase, let's say, between when the World Wide Web slash the internet first came to be and the more established Web3. But remember, there's probably going to be a Web4, which will be even more established, that type of thing. So Web3 is referred to as intelligent web sometimes, semantic web, or simply just the third generation of internet-based services, or Web3. (laughs) Really easy. So the term Web3 was coined by uh, John Markoff in 2006, and a quote from him uh, about this reads, quote, There is no easy consensus about how to define what is meant by Web3.0, but it generally seems as a reference to the semantic web. So semantic web if you're wondering, refers to tech that will be used to improve the internet through understanding what people are doing online and not just how pages link together. Remember that in, back in Web 1, there wasn't a Reddit or some sometimes there wasn't even established search engines or the other areas to be linked through as we just as we talked about back then. It's not as commonly done as it was today. And today we have all these webs of people sharing stuff, but a lot of traffic comes from those shares. A lot of traffic comes from me sending Mike a YouTube video and he goes to it and a bunch of people do that to their friends and they go to that one YouTube video. So the web two is really just a more established web of links when it comes to, when it, when it's compared, excuse me, to web one. It's more just like this net that keeps getting more and more connections, more and more pieces of string in that net to bring everything together, internet, literally. But web three is going to try to, make things a little more intelligent and make things a little bit less about linking around so much. So one big aspect of Web3 is that the web, meaning that literally the computers and the servers that it was built on, will not only store the information that you stay on there, like your Facebook post or something, but it will actually understand the information. The actual computer and the server will understand the information. And Web3 is starting to show itself with technologies like virtual assistants. Namely, namely, excuse me, Apple Siri and Google and the Google Assistant. There's others as well, of course. And these assistants are realistically in their infancy, although they're very consumerized. I have a, I'm surrounded by virtual assistants right now. Literally, I got like four devices in here. They all virtual assistants. They all talk to me and they're, they say dumb things sometimes. So, (laughs) so the, the dumb things is literally, it's pointing out they're in their infancy. They're just starting to learn how humans speak and they're just starting to understand different ways to phrase things. If you remember, and maybe I'm dating myself again, my first phone had a nuance. I think that company was just bought actually, but a nuance, like you'd click a button, it'd be like, please wait, say a command. And it was just literally like, call this person or like text this person, stuff like that. It was really sort of, this is how we do it. These new assistants, and it happened quick. It was like, it went from that type of stuff, or at least what I was exposed to, it went from that type of stuff, real simple, to just being like, hey, you can just talk to your Google Assistant and tell it to do stuff. Like, hey, like, you know, do this on the TV. And I never even set that up. It's not like I went in and did an intricate web of, like, setting up a TV. I was just like, oh, like, those two things are kind of intelligent with each other. Hey, play this on the TV. And it's like, all right. Like, it just does it. And I never set that up explicitly. So it's starting to get a little bit understanding. It's starting to get a little bit more intelligence. And you can see the progress of this nature through various advancements in their feature sets. Like I said, the TVs, the like, t- turning on the lights, this type of thing. And a big standout in this, to me, 
is, I know it's controversial, but Google Duplex. So that's that thing that Google showed off a few years ago where Google Assistant called a, a hair salon, and I think another example was shown as well, and it made an appointment for you. You tell it, hey, make me an appointment for this time, and you make, and it made you an appointment. It's starting to get those little ums and ahs and the pauses, and it, it has a more natural voice. It's not just like a Microsoft Sam sort of ro- robot voice. It's It's getting there. It's starting to get there. And this is a Web3 thing that not necessarily has anything to do with the stuff we're annoyed with. It's like cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all this. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with that. I'm sure that we could tie them together with our interconnectivity. But this is a part of Web3 as well. Now, beyond AI, we have a lot of hype, obviously, coming out of blockchain technologies. So... This is obvious, and obviously blockchain is closely tied to or literally entangled with things like cryptocurrencies, NFTs, smart contracts. You can see that crypto is becoming more mainstream with easy to use exchanges and different apps that connect to these exchanges and easy to use user interfaces. And, you know, users are just looking to spend their money. So they're able to log into this app and just like pay with a credit card or pay with this or pay with that. And these exchanges are actually a good example of how Web 2 and Web 3 sort of mix. And they work together. Because these exchanges are almost always centralized. These easy-to-use exchanges are, a company has been set up, maybe it's even registered with a regular, with some sort of financial institution, or it's a regulated exchange, and it literally comes in, and you can go in there and use your credit card, your Visa card, you can send it money. You can do the stuff that you would normally do with a lot of different bank accounts. These are oftentimes centralized. So it's Web 2 working with Web 3 tech. And there's also decentralized exchanges, which because they're in their infancy are less consumerized. They're usually less easy to understand. They're harder to understand. You can make mistakes on there type of thing. There's no sort of safety net when it comes to banking where like in banking, it'll be like, hey, you can't do that. You know, the your banking app be like, you can't send it there. You can't do that. You can make some mistakes, but there's some safety in there. But a lot of this stuff, you can accidentally send a million dollars to a wallet address that doesn't exist. And there it goes. At, at times and things are slowly getting better. But the point is, is like things are in their infancy and web two and web three are going to start melding and start working together for this type of thing. Now we also have major shifts in, and this is, you know, getting away from the crypto and that we also have major shifts in Silicon Valley with new hardware devices for VR and AR, making themselves easier to acquire financially. The meta quest two or the Facebook quest or the Oculus quest two, very cheap in comparison to what things were before, where you needed a really good computer and then you got this whole room set up and it's like multi-thousands of dollars. It's like $400 or something Canadian, which is, you know, Canadian is also worth worth less than US dollars. So it's, I don't know what the price is there, but it's like $400 or something-ish and you you can get a MetaQuest 2 and it's an all-inclusive thing. So it's getting real accessible. And even Apple, which notoriously doesn't join things, join markets right away, Even them, they're reported, although it's unconfirmed, to be making some sort of AR headset or visor or something like that. And to kind of complement this AR VR stuff, alongside these experiences, Silicon Valley and mainly Facebook, because they literally changed their name to Meta, is the Metaverse. Something we're also annoyed at hearing, but I'm going to try to quell that a little bit because I've experienced it now. So the metaverse promises to, I would say, almost, quote unquote, extend one's digital life in a way, bringing the social aspects of everyday life and unique experiences that you could only have in a digital world, like flying around with tr- in trees or something. It brings that to this digital universe. 
And it brings it to you via various apps, games, software, VR, AR, even on just on regular screen, those type of things. And these experiences range, right, from hanging out with friends at a digital venue of your choosing, or even just creating your own world for you or your, for you and your friends, or for the actual online community at large to experience. There are metaverses out there that are free to join and use. So, uh, Meta's Horizon Worlds or Facebook's, that's Facebook's metaverse, basically. You, I go on my Oculus Quest. Uh, I think it's in like a beta, so it might be, I think it took like a day or two for it to roll out to me or whatever, whatever. Like it's in, it's still in its early stages, but basically I like go to the app store. There it is. It says I can download it. I press get or download or whatever. It was free. I'm now in there. That's it. Like I'm running around. I made a little avatar. It showed me some of the controls and now I'm running around. I can play games. I can hang out with people. I can talk to people, whatever. But you, if you want to, if you, if you love the cryptocurrency angle, there's other metaverses that are closely tied to cryptocurrency and blockchain stuff that bring your digital currency into your digital life with the ability to play to earn. So you can play games to earn money. You can even invest money in digital assets like digital land and digital real estate. You can do that type of stuff. And some metaverses are planning on, or some maybe even have it already, are having NFTs fully displayable. So if you, if you really want, to have a digital art collection, you love NFTs, you might be able to build yourself this big digital mansion and then have all these NFTs and you can express yourself that way. Like, that's kind of cool. Now, all of this stuff, okay, you're probably rolling your eyes, maybe even left already, but all this stuff has been shoved down our throats by marketing teams and social media wizards for months. With fatigue surely going to set in soon or fully set in already? However, as a person that did not have access to VR regularly, I only played a couple of games here and there. I used an Oculus Dev Kit 1, and then I used a Vive, which was really cool. And I saw like sort of this big jump, like <laughs> Dev Kit 1 to, to HTC Vive is a big, is a big jump. But I received a MetaQuest 2 for Christmas and as a gift. And I want to tell you that it's not, it, it goes further than just running around for like, say, digital Pokemon with like the little AR Pokemon Go app, right? Which I, played the crap out of as well. It's it's literally, it's more than that. So it's one of these experiences that I really think you have to try before you can pass judgment on. I know that some people are going to be like, no, nah, I don't want to try that crap. It's like, but there's no real harm in trying it. Like you can try it once and then never go back. Like I've only really had one or two experiences in the metaverse. Like I haven't gone back over and over again. Like there was a night one time where I was just, I wanted to try the uh, Meta's Horizon Worlds or whatever. I wanted to try Horizon Worlds, which is Facebook's uh, metaverse again. So I decided, all right. So I go, th- I go and sign up, make an avatar, make a character, whatever. Do all the tutorial stuff, walking around, and some guys just running around, like sort of being like, "Hey man, like come check out this world." Hey man, come check out this world. And I thought he was an NPC. I was like, oh, it's just like I'm like, oh, it's like I'm in VR, but it's like this, like get this guy out of here type of thing. Like what? That was my original reaction. Like why is this guy heckling me? But it was a real, real person. And then, like, somebody started talking to him, and I was kind of standing on the side. I was like, holy crap, I'm standing beside this person. Like, in VR, but I am. And then I had a conversation with him, and we ended up going to his. He was working on this 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 world where it was, like, a digital nightclub. It was still under construction. And we, like, we were playing with it, and people started slowly, because he was obviously in this town square telling people to go there. So a group of people started showing up, and this one guy and I found his VIP section. And we ended up with, like, five or maybe eight people or something, all standing around in this VIP section. This is in the middle of the night. Like, 
we're I'm in this VIP section of a, of a of a club under construction, and we're just chatting about like this guy wants to do this in the metaverse. This guy is going to do influencer stuff in the metaverse full time. This guy was in the military, and you know he's just about to finish his uh, time there and stuff. And like seriously, like having a full on conversation, and we even had like the funny like people were accidentally bumping into each other because they don't know like how to re- how to act with like a digital person in front of them. But it really is like really normal once you get a h- the hang of it. Like, it, it feels like someone's actually there and stuff like this. Like, this is something you really have to experience firsthand. Because when I took the headset off, I was like, I was just in someone's fucking nightclub. Like, what the heck was I doing? I wasn't running around in Dying Light or Skyrim or something like I would normally be doing. I was hanging around with, like, five, six random people. Like, what's going on here? So, if, if you have an experience, if you have a chance to experience AR, VR for yourself, you know, don't necessarily listen to all the marketing this and that just just give it a i honestly think like just give it a go and i'll be honest with you i don't really remember logging in i remember i maybe logged in horizon worlds one more time so it's not like i'm super addicted to it but that experience like i remember that that was like super cool so i really encourage you because even though you can say things like well i can just zoom you and i can just do this being physically there and like vr working really well actually and having somebody beside you feels a lot more natural than you think it's not going to feel like oh this is uncanny like where's the legs that's a joke cuz Met- the horizon world doesn't have legs it's not that crazy and like i even had like a ricky bobby moment where i didn't know how to what to do with my hands like i was like do i hold cuz like obviously the controllers are tracking my hands and i'm like do i and so my hands were just up and I think one of the guys was like, why are your hands up? I was like, I don't really know what to do with my hands. Like, it, it's like a whole, <laughs> like, it's just a funny little social thing. I encourage you to try this. Like, not, not kidding. Just try it. Don't be like, oh, can I min-max my, just, just try it out. Horizon Worlds is really easy and there's no crypto and stuff that I'm aware of in there. Just give it a try. And that's Web3. <laughs> like, this is a Web3 thing that doesn't necessarily involve crypto. Is it, just, just to jump in here a little bit, is is it more of like a social thing right now? Is that the advantage to, I guess, the early beta stages of the metaverse? Because I, I have a hard time. I'm, I'm maybe like the perfect person to tell this to because I have a really hard time understanding metaverse anything uh, like digital land and any of that stuff doesn't make sense in my head, even though I've done quite a bit of research into it and tried to wrap my head around it, but I've never experienced it. So I'm not I'm exactly the person that you're talking about that's like skeptical because I don't know what you do in there. But to me, like your experience that you just described is a social one. So the positive aspect of it, like you were there, you were with these people is all purely like, Oh my God, I'm with people randomly. It's like, it's a, it's a step above when you enter a chat room for the first time, right? Like I, I remember that vividly talking about like web, like the early stages of web two or even web one. That was a very vivid experience for me when I entered a chat room for the first time and I talked to people that I had never met before immediately. Is this that same kind of like next level experience that you can see? building on as a base because this is the base like what we're seeing today with metaverses is the first iteration absolutely think back to those chat rooms and those back in those days how kind of useless they were they were like a lot of the times they weren't even themed they were nothing like there was just like hey just type in here and talk to each other and people talked about nothing that's how i see metaverses right now it's like this is the social start but it's like 
a good social start because that's that's how what I got. That's the vibe I got when you were telling that story is like, okay, we're getting the social aspect and we're going to build on that. So later on, you're going to get together and maybe you go and plan a, a raid and games or a bit. Or maybe you plan a business idea and you try it inside the metaverse or maybe whatever. Like you, you go shopping for whatever reason. Like I can't – it's tough for me to – picture that because I can't imagine going shopping with a bunch of people in the metaverse, but I think that's where we're going, right? Like that's the stuff that's going to happen. Well, this is, there's, this is a multifaceted question. And I've actually pondered this quite a bit since I've gotten this thing. And like, there's, okay. So there's one aspect, there's one aspect of it. Let's say um, you're right, you're right on the social, like right now, especially in horizon worlds. Cause I haven't tried the other ones that are connected to cryptos and stuff and selling land, but you're right on the social aspect. Right now, it's it's very it's 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 weirdly natural feeling, and it feels like you're right beside somebody and you're chatting with them. Like it, it's it's super it's like super immer like it's more immersive than anything. It's like the chat room was a tool to connect to that person beyond like writing a you know being a pen pal, writing a physical note to them, putting it in an envelope, shipping it, waiting a couple weeks, and then getting one back. You know this is you know the like AIM and all those instant messengers and a bunch of them have been replaced at this point. But instant messaging is not the same as this. This is like a new thing. Like this is a, like if you experience social anxiety, you'd probably experience social anxiety in this thing. Like it's, it's really close. It's really close to at least at the talking and hanging out level. It's really close to the real thing. Now, obviously you can't be, you know, passing things around and stuff like that. Although maybe you can like, cause obviously it tracks your hands and event and there's already hand tracking without the controllers coming. So it'll even track your fingers and stuff. It's actually already available, but I think it's in beta um, stuff like that. Like it's, it's not like, I don't think that it, it it'll at least not right now. It's not going to replace social interaction. Like obviously you're still going to want to see your friends, but if you were like really separated from somebody for a really long time and you were just into messaging and you really want to see them, but you just can't for whatever reason, I think this is going to be, this is a huge step forward. Like, I think that like you going with them being like, let's go to a coffee shop. Let's go sit around in a forest. Let's go sit around in a jungle. It's, it's still just your observation. Like you're not going to feel the wind in your face. You're not going to be able to like hug them or something necessarily. Uh, although some of those AR VR things are coming, but it really is like a big step forward in social. Like it's, it's, it's now gone beyond like the tool that is instant messaging which is like, hey, I just want to instantly message this person really quick. I need them to see this message. It's like the next step forward. I would say that it's almost it almost goes like you have letters, like you're writ- written letters, and then you kind of went to instant messaging, or no, you kind of went to email, then you went to instant messaging, then you went to photo calling. This is the next step. But I don't think it's going to necessarily replace all this. So obviously, we still have email. Obviously, we still have texting. Obviously, we still have this. Everything has its own UX, its own context. But I think that this is something that's really cool. You could get together with like a band of people and play a game. Like if you if if, if a piece of software is compatible with a board game, you can fucking play a board game and you literally like go put your hand out, pick out the piece and move it. Like you could like, I don't know a specific app that does that, but like we're not far from that if it doesn't exist. And it, and it probably already does exist. Another thing I want to point out, too, actually, is actually this type of stuff. I think is going to revolutionize. This is going to sound weird. I think it's going to revolutionize retirement homes and accessibility as well. Anyone who can't get out due to a health problem, anyone who can't do um, like something like, let's say you have like a terrible flu 
but like you're like you're you're at that point where you're starting to feel better and like you're still contagious so you can't go out or whatever like let's say you literally have covid or something right just like you can't go out for some reason or you broke your foot and you can't get out something as simple as that like you could fucking run like a coffee shop in this in in the metaverse now not necessarily they're going to serve real coffee but you could have people coming in there chatting with you and stuff like that like how much closer to that is like how much better to me anyway like that's like like I would just exist in the metaverse if I like broke my legs and I couldn't go and I had to wait for my legs to heal up. Or even an old age home, an old age home, they're always seen as this like dreary and stuff like this. What if you just like go into the metaverse when it gets like super, super good? What if you go into the metaverse and you like run your own business? Like I've always wanted to run a coffee shop. You like, fucking build a coffee shop and you could like whatever, charge 99 cents or whatever and whatever. Like you could, uh, I think Domino's has a metaverse dominoes and i think you can actually order pizza to your house from there like maybe there's going to be apis for that where you can order coffee and you're literally getting a commission of people's coffee and they want to hang out at your in your particular metaverse uh, coffee shop because you just designed a super cool thing like you're going to see an industry i think of people that are going to be hiring builders where you're going to be like i want to run a coffee shop i don't want to build it you build it there's going to be developers and different engineers and designers and stuff like that that go in and build a metaverse house with the tools that they have in the in whatever metaverse they are and then you could run a coffee shop like i think it's seriously going to change th- change things a lot like me personally if i'm like if i'm in an old age home when i get older I honestly see myself just going into the metaverse. Can I can I play devil's advocate a little bit? Yeah. Um, do we really want that? Like, is it that much better than just sitting at your really nice monitor and, you know, chatting to someone on Discord or video chat? Like, is that really – I get it. Like, I get the fact that it has a little bit of that gimmicky feeling where, like, you when you, the first time you go in, it's cool. But are you – do I really care that I'm 3D virtually there or is Discord with video chat enough for me or even just Discord voice chat? Like, I don't know if I feel that disconnect, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't know, like when I'm in a Discord voice chat with everyone and we're all just chatting and gaming, I don't know if I'm going to be, if it's going to be much of a difference for me or if I'm even going to care at all if I'm virtually there in the metaverse. I think that you, that that is an absolutely valid complaint. I think that that complaint can only really be decided upon personally when you experience it. So you might go in there and be like, this is dumb and leave. And that's fair. You might think like, no one's going to ever do this. But to me, it's a totally different thing. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you an example. I play games all the time, horror games. Fuck, it doesn't matter. Like I play, I play a lot of games. I can't, like, I bought The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners. That game scares the crap out of me. Zombie is literally right in your face. You're trying to swing knives around. You're getting attacked. It, that game scares the crap out of me. It can't be the first mission. So gaming, yes, gaming in VR, I think, is a totally different thing. I think I'm more talking about the social stuff. Like, I, I just don't, I don't know if the social stuff is enough. Because the metaverse really relies on the social aspect like we were just talking about earlier right like Mm -hmm. that's really where the metaverse that's the base the foundation of the metaverse like you're saying going from going to starbucks or going to domino's with your friends and ordering a pizza together and having it delivered to your house all from virtual reality sounds really cool and interesting i just i have a hard time wrapping my head around like 
being in Discord and just going to the website and ordering it from there, is it really that different? Is it enough of a difference to justify these massive metaverses selling land for a ludicrous amount of money, hoping for it to pay back? Because the whole idea of this land being worth money is that someone down the line will want to purchase that land to build another Domino's or coffee shop or whatever, because there's a lot of foot traffic in that land. Because as soon as people come out of that Domino's that's already there, they'll go on and go to another place. That's the idea of the metaverse land, at least. Is it enough? Is the social aspect enough to keep people there? Barring gaming, right? Like we're not, we're not talking about gaming horror right. games. Obviously, that immersion is like you can't do that with a screen, right? But the social stuff, like I for extroverts, yes. But there's not extroversion. Like that's fifty percent, right? I don't know. I don't know what the actual rating like is. It fifty percent of people or not? But I I think you're gonna honestly. I think you're gonna see a blend. Like this is okay. this is what I mean by accessibility stuff. So for example, let's say let's say we have a plan to go to a movie theater. We're gonna go to like. It's like a whole event. So it's like we're going to go to like some old timey movie theater. It's like a really novelty thing. We're going to pay a bunch of money and we're going to like watch some movie in two weeks. I fall down the stairs and I break both my legs. Just hypothetically. Now I can't go. So I'm all like tied up. We're not there yet. I want to be clear. But I think that if you guys are wearing AR glasses, which you probably will be because we're all wearing I'm wearing a damn smartwatch. So are you, I think. Right. We're slowly getting inter- integrated with this tech. I'm going to be able to put on my VR headset. And you guys are going to be able to take me there and I'm going to be in the theater. I paid for my ticket. Like they're not going to kick me out. Like I paid for my VR experience at this point. And I'm going to be sitting beside you guys in the theater watching the thing like as if I'm there. Is it one step removed from actually being there? 2000% that's absolutely correct. Is it better than you trying to like bootleg the video for me? Absolutely. See, the thing is, is like a video call to me is like a tool. That that's what I would say. It's another tool. And this is also a tool, to be fair. But it's getting to that point. It's getting to that point where like when I play game, like I've been playing games for so long that it takes a lot to immerse me. A lot of time I'm like looking for the mechanic to like beat the game quick. <laughs> you know, like like, like games are kind of like built upon mechanics and I kind of search, seek out the mechanics. That's kind of what I do. Uh, I'm at that point in my gaming career. But like in these VR games, even though I do have minimal exposure, so maybe like, you know, I would. Maybe I would like eventually get to this point, but like you get super immersed where you're like, oh my God, there's people around me. And you're like, you're actually like adversely reacting to stuff quickly and stuff like that. Like you're being immersed in a way that isn't possible yet. And I honestly feel as though like we're going to get there. Like another, another example might be if you like, if you like really want to, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a prime example is, is this actually. Let, let, let's meld gaming and whatever as an example. Right now, in games, if you're a gamer, you can pay a copious amount of money in microtransactions for stuff. For skins on guns, which is like the paint job. Um, for different skins for your character, which is like costumes, basically. Those type of things for people that don't game. Like, you can pay copious amounts of money for that type of stuff. All the time. You can also grind for the currency, or you can grind for things in the game. Maybe there's an unlock that takes 200 hours of your time. Maybe. But with this type of stuff, if you think about it, like, let's say, for example, uh, Minecraft. Minecraft doesn't have any microtransactions, at least. Uh, I think it has some skins now, but whatever. Minecraft, 
you know, exists. And when we played it back in the day when it was, you know, pre-Microsoft and all that, it was, there was no microtransactions. You bought it, bang, it's good. Someone hosts a server. What's the first thing everyone does? Finds a place to build a town. They start building a town. Now, this is with a small community of, say, four or five of your friends. So, there's five or six of you total, right? Think about this on the mass scale where people are going to be wanting to build an actual city. And they're going to be able to do it digitally. So, they're going to be able to – like, they're not going to have, you know, the, let's say the red tape of real life where it's like, I want to build a skyscraper. But that's $2 billion and the land's $22 million, So, I can't. But in a in a metaverse that doesn't support buying the land for real money, you might be able to just build yourself a skyscraper. But here's the thing. In a metaverse that does support the real money, you're going to see an actual like corporate machine grow up. Whether that's good or bad, it remains to be seen. It's still in its infancy. But it's the same concept is, is the – like people are willing to spend money on costumes, skins, and all this stuff in games. Microtransactions and currencies. They're willing to spend their time – Hundreds of hours grinding for stuff and this type of thing. So, of course, this digital piece of land has value because if it was in a regular game and it wasn't tied to a metaverse, it would probably be sold for 10 or $15. That's how I see it. Okay. And so what, I, what I'm seeing is, is like what we're doing at this point is we're becoming like two people, which is, I don't know if it's good or bad, but we're becoming like two people where we have like a digital presence and like a physical presence. And it's like, when you come home after work, you might just want to go into the digital world and like hang out in your, like, you might want to run your coffee shop and like go for it. I, I bet that a lot of this has to do with the fact that stuff like Fortnite and Minecraft, like you said, has become so popular and it's growing with the younger generation because really you're building the metaverse, not for the current generation, not for us. You're building it for the future, like 10, 15, 20 years down. And those are the people that are going to be really, really the ones, the, the consumers of the metaverse that you're targeting. And you can, when you're investing or when you're putting, you know, uh, like pitching to investors, that's what people are probably pointing to saying, like, look at these social events that are happening in something as stupid as Fortnite. Look at these concerts. Look at this. Like this isn't even VR and people are attending these concerts. And I went to tickets. one. I, I love Fortnite. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, like, but that, that's what people are pointing to. And then they're like, imagine that being in VR with, with property and land and, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden they're putting together this realistic outlook that like, this is what people want. And then it becomes like you, you've kind of convinced me in the sense that I see where the investment is now. Like I see that there might be a very real market for this. If the younger generation is already proving it with Fortnite and Minecraft, then these things as they mature could be, you know, a significant amount, significantly better. And uh, okay. I, I mean, yeah, that's that was an interesting little tangent there for me. You know the movie Surrogates. I think this work. Do you know? Do you know what that is actually? I think so. Yes. So it's like, I mean, it's with Bruce Willis, and yeah, 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 he literally mm-hmm. like gets into a pod and mm-hmm. he controls a robot version of himself. Yep. And he walks around and he's melded with that. This type of work, this metaverse stuff, right now, I think is work that needs to be done to get to that point. Like I'm, I'm telling you right now that like, given the option, and this is me personally. Given the option of being stuck in an old age home, a retirement home, which like has to happen, you know, we get older, right? And some of the old age homes are great and some of them aren't, whatever. 
But given the option of being stuck in one building, period, it doesn't even matter if it's an amazing building. Getting stuck in one building versus being being able to like go into a metaverse or connect to a surrogate and run around like I used to, it's no question. I'm going to run around as a surrogate. It's over for me. And I think that that's going to be a huge accessibility thing. If somebody is like, let's say they're not injured, they have a disability. Like imagine being able to meld with a surrogate and then being able to go and do stuff. That might not help everyone. People might not want to do that, and that's fine. But it's another option for us. Like, all, I, I honestly, like, think about the amount of research that's going to go into brain stuff to connect us together with something digital. That alone might revolutionize brain surgery. Like, this is serious shit. Like, I honestly think that this is, I know people are scared of it and this and that. I'm optimistic about it. Because I think there's enough checks and balances where the government, if it gets out of control, the government's going to be like, nope, stop. Like, I think it's just going to be like, a, that's it. Like, you can't do this anymore. That's why we see, like, say the stock market be so regulated and stuff like that. I know there's problems still, but be so regulated and stuff like that. Because there was a lot of shady stuff going on in the real early days. And it's like, all right, that's it. And they dropped the hammer. So I think there's enough checks and balances. Like this might just be me being naive and you listener and you Mike may think I'm crazy and you might think it's, it's bad for accessibility. That's fine. But I'm optimistic that this is going to be a big thing for accessibility and a big thing for, uh, for like everything. I honestly think like imagine like having like, and I've, I've told you this before, Mike, imagine having digital eyes. You can just see at night with no lights on. I want that. <laughs> I don't want to carry a camera. I want my eyes to take a picture. Like, I'm down for that. Some people are scared of it. That's great. But I want that. <laughs> like, and I think that this is the step forward. Will, will I see it? Maybe not. Maybe. Because, I mean, tech moves really damn fast. Maybe. But I think this is the first step. I know that we're kind of off tangent now and whatever. But this type of stuff will lead to that type of research, I think. We'll start understanding the brain more, how it works, how this and that. And then we'll be able to probably solve more medical problems just as a side effect. Like, all right, cool. That now that, that's me. Uh, maybe I'm too optimistic. You know, if you have a, you know, a take on that, hit me up on Twitter or whatever. But um, that's my take on it. I, I think the future is bright in this regard. And I don't think the metaverse is necessarily a bad thing. There's probably going to be bad shit that happens in there. But there's bad shit that happens in real life, too. So now these might be mute points now. <laughs> But I have some personal notes on Web3 after all that. <laughs> Do you need to go into them now? I, <laughs> well, one thing I just want to uh, I just want to really briefly touch on, actually, is how I think information is going to be used when the computer understands it. So right now, you might think like, you know how like you'll have like a feed of information like news and it's it's smart. So you have an account and it's it, like it intelligently algorithmically tells you stuff. So if I go to GameSpot, the algorithm will, and I'm simplifying things, but the algorithm will say, GameSpot covers video games. Matt went to video game posts. Show Matt video game posts. And then it will keep sending me that. But what if I went to a specific a specific post on GameSpot to see a specific esports team because I have a friend that's on the team? If the computer understands all this information, which is obviously of a privacy concern as well, but if the computer knows all this information and understands it and it sees, well, Matt, you know, reads gaming news, but he never reads esports, but he went to this one and he has a friend on there, it might be able to connect that dot and then 
instead of it flooding my feed with all this gaming news, it will give me a real quick, like, or it'll give me uh, just the article, sorry, on like that player, like that esports athlete or that team now. Like it understands that connection. I think that's where the curation's going. And we're starting to see that with Google understanding videos. It's not just a video where it looks at the tags, the title, and comments, maybe, and it just says, like, oh, this this video is about how to use a hammer. If I type in how to use a hammer, it'll literally take a video that's 10 minutes long and be like, watch minute one through 135. And that, that'll be like, well, how to use a hammer. So it understands the content of the video. Obviously, with you know some help with metas with metadata and um, you know chaptering and stuff like that, but like it understands the video and will like point that out to me. And the same thing with written parts; it'll like take a little excerpt. So I just wanted to point that out. So rapid fire as a total conclusion to this episode because we've gone on for a while now. As a total conclusion, I have some three rapid fire FAQ. Will Web three re- replace Web two? I don't believe so. I think it's going to meld. They're going to work together. It's a UX thing. If you'd never want to make an account, if you never want to do this and that, I don't know if you'll ever be forced to, but probably not. If you just want to keep just reading sites, I don't think those sites are going anywhere. So you should be fine. That's my opinion. What does this mean for the average internet user? You're going to see a lot of different changes, but your use case is going to change or your use case is up to you, whether you want to change your use case. I would say keep pay attention to it so you don't fall behind. That's just me. And number three, what does this mean for freelancers uh, and other web de- web development industry folk? Probably just more work. Maybe AI will take over our jobs one day. But if that if that happens, I mean, it happens in a whole bunch of different industries. So then it happened. Um, but that's that's my take on it. Those are my rapid fire uh, FAQ. So after all that, I think I'm good. I think I've talked enough. Mike, do you have any other comments before I run this conclusion? Um, I just, just a quick one with, with uh, especially for like, what does this mean for the average internet user? Um, if you're, if we're talking blockchain technology and crypto and stuff like that, I think a lot of the negativity around it right now is because the UX of it is so much worse than what we're used to, um, from, for many different reasons. One being that there's not a lot of good designers in the web three space with crypto sites like DEXs. And the second part being that decentralization comes at a cost in terms of not only monetary, but in terms of computing power as well. So, like, it's just a shitty experience than what we're currently used to. Like, we're currently used to loading a site and all of a sudden it's loaded, right? But as soon as you start talking about the blockchain, as soon as you start talking about web like uh, decentralization, that goes away right now, currently in our state, where you, you've got to wait for transactions to go through. You've got to wait for load to happen. You've got to wait for a check with the blockchain to happen. All of that adds up to a really shitty experience. And when people start like taking it apart, they're like, well, it's still kind of centralized as well. Like right now, the, the currencies aren't decentralized enough to be really fully on their own, right? Uh, someone can come in with enough money and take them down, and uh, that's happened many times on all the on on many different platforms. So it's like there's no re- you can't really see a direct positive to using any of it unless you're trading cryptocurrency and uh, you know making money on that, which is whatever. Like that is what it is. But in terms of a customer facing thing, it all looks bad, 
And that's why the negativity is coming out against it. Anytime a customer goes and tries to use a DEX, anytime a customer goes and tries to use a centralized exchange like Binance or Coinbase or whatever, it's going to be a worse experience than what they're used to with the current Web 2.0 protocols. It's just going to be because the technology has not cut up yet. I think decentralization is something we're striving for um, for a few different reasons. And, and some of them are ethical. Some of them are monetary and stuff like that. But it's probably like some things are going to be more decentralized as we move forward, which will probably mean that they're going to start off in a worse place than they're in right now with Web 2. But I, I encourage people to kind of think of it from a long-term perspective. And in some cases, I can see a decentralized version of something being a lot more safe um, and a lot more, you know, a lot more resilient to the pressure, like the, to out, outside pressures and maybe more for the people, I guess. But the other part of it is, is like, it's not all about that because decentralization will also benefit the people that can go in and manipulate it. And those people are usually the people with money. So there, there's a lot to this system. There's a lot to what, what we talk about with Web3 and what we talk about for the average internet user. And I think what we did today and what Matt did with this massive show notes is kind of give you the power to make your own decision on it and to not see it from one single side. Because I, ju- I just see too much of it being like, oh, it's just bad for the environment or it's this or that. And like we, we didn't really cover the bad for the environment part, but we've talked about it in previous episodes with proof of work with proof of stake. But like it's not just a one thing. Like it's not just a one-sided argument. It, it never is. There's so much to it and it's important to see it from those sides before you start making your own judgments and before you start – going with the herd and you know going against it for whatever reason or going for it and starting to evangelize it to everyone that wants to hear it because both sides both the extremes are damaging web3 and what it can become we need to come together into somewhere in the middle and shape it to what we want to become instead of yelling at each other from from different areas like from different like you know corners of the room Absolutely. Uh, I had a section in my research, actually, um, that had like the negative, the negative points of, you know, misinformation, this and that, whatever. But I didn't cover that because I wanted this to be sort of like what Mike said, like a guide where you read about what it is. And if you decide that this facet of it, whatever it is, if you think the metaverse is the worst thing ever and I'm an idiot, then okay, that's fine. But like, if you think that you know, web one should be how things are done, then okay, make a site. You can still make a site that way. Like, go ahead. You can still do that. It's, it, it really is up to you. So I really wanted this to be more of an educational episode than it is a episode telling you what to think. Obviously we share our opinions and our thoughts, of course, it's a podcast, but you know, if you disagree, I mean, that's fine. Like good, because like, I certainly might be screaming and yelling, saying the metaverse, is the best thing ever. And then you might be a doctor being like, actually the data shows that that's really bad. And I mean, fair enough. Like maybe I'm wrong. Like, I don't know. Uh, it's new. It might completely collapse. It might go crazy. It might evolve to something else. Just like how the dot-com collapse, you know, really hurt the internet and internet companies. Uh, we're still here. You know, it evolved. Things change. Seriously, like, you know, it evolved. Things change. Maybe we'll have a metaverse collapse. Who yep. knows? So 
Um, well, I think that's that's a great conclusion to this episode. So I hope you enjoyed that. Over 10 pages of show notes and three or five pages of research. I think I wrote little points. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And remember that if you want to support episodes like this, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons. Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on YouTube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Garrett from Local Path Computing and Web Design on localpathcomputing.com Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via blueblackdigital.com Chris from Self-Made Web Designer via selfmadewebdesigner.com Tim from The Web Hacker via thewebhacker.com DL Ford from dlford.io Bib Hashash from Media via nineblockmedia.com Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com Michael Curie from mcwebstudio via mcwebstudio.ca Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale and Edubloxians game designed for kids at edubloxians.com Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.